HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, made in harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome cooking teacher Pascal Beal and chef Jeremy Tummel. In today's episode, we'll talk to Pascal and Jeremy about what makes Santa Barbara such a special food place, treasures from the Santa Barbara Farmer's Market, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're celebrating a place Julia loved and called home, Santa Barbara, where the foundation is headquartered. We're coming to you live from the Saturday morning Santa Barbara Farmer's Market. It's one of the oldest running of the new era of California farmer's markets and a place Julia often shopped. It's one of the many reasons Julia loved Santa Barbara. While Julia is often associated with Boston, she was a born and bred Californian, raised in Pasadena. Her family frequented the Santa Barbara coast for weekend and summer getaways. 
Santa Barbara's beauty is a product of its unique geography, much like the French Riviera, where verdant mountains drop quickly down to Emerald Sea. This provides Santa Barbara with a temperate, Mediterranean-like climate. Where else can you savor freshly caught sea urchin and locally grown strawberries with a glass of award-winning local wine? Julia's love for the area and her embrace of its culinary riches inspired the foundation to work with the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience to present the 2022 Taste of Santa Barbara, a week-long celebration of its food, drink, and hospitality industries. The Saturday morning Santa Barbara Farmer's Market showcases the region's produce and growers all in one spot. Two people who deeply understand all that Santa Barbara offers are cooking teacher Pascal Beal and chef Jeremy Tummel of La Paloma Cafe. Jeremy and Pascal joined us live at the Saturday Santa Barbara Farmer's Market on May 21st during the Taste of Santa Barbara. On today's show, they share their appreciation for the market and all that Santa Barbara offers. First up is Pascal Beal. Taught to cook by her French mother and grandmother, Pascal opened her Santa Barbara cooking school, Pascal's Kitchen, more than 20 years ago. With a focus on Mediterranean-style cooking, Pascal teaches classes featuring menus inspired by the local and seasonal food of Santa Barbara. She recently teamed up with Sandra Aduzelli to form Two Baking Brits, which produces culinary events, food collaborations, and digital media. As a writer, Pascal is the author of nine cookbooks, which showcase local and seasonal fruit and vegetable recipes. Her most recent cookbook, Salad 2, More Recipes from the Market Table, was published in 2020. She also writes for local newspapers and food magazines, including Edible Santa Barbara. So I would like to welcome Pascal Beal to join us. Thank you. I'm going to sit down now to have a proper conversation with Pascal. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here. Well, thank you for being here. So we wanted to find out more about particularly where we are now, the Santa Barbara's Farmer's Market, because it was a place that was important to Julia and is important yes. to Santa Barbara. And, you know, I like to say unique in all the world in terms of not for a farmer's market, but for how amazing the farmer's market is. But can we start with what brought you to Santa Barbara? So I was originally based, I'm obviously, I'm not from these shores. I'm half English and half French. And I came to work in America for one year and came to LA first. And then after 14 years in a completely different industry, I moved to Santa Barbara in 1997. And that's when I first came here and discovered the farmer's market almost immediately. Um, it is, as you said, a unique farmer's market. There are chefs, people who come from around the world who are used to farmer's markets in really big cities, and they come here, and then they go, my God, this is incredible. How did this, how did this farmer's market materialize? And the quality of the food here is extraordinary. Well, and I'm pretty sure it has a significant history. It, it's it's a little bit tricky to say. It's not the oldest farmer's market in the country because the farmer's market existed yes before the industrialization of food, but it is one of the older ones of the sort of the return to having farmer's markets. Yes, and the lovely thing, so there are, Santa Barbara, well, Santa Barbara has six farmer's markets during the week, so all every day but Monday. Two of them are in Santa Barbara proper, and the Saturday one, the one that we're sitting in right now, um, is 
it's in a parking lot, but the great thing is, is that it's a giant square, basically. So it has a very European feel about it, and it's a tree-covered square. So you walk up and down the aisles, and it's it, it's fabulous. It feels very Provençal, very Mediterranean, and that is I mean, we're in the American Riviera. So for me, I I feel like I stepped from from Provence to you know, to being here in California, and it's, it feels like home. And since we're on radio, I'll set the stage for the, the audience can see and hear what it feels like, but blue sky, the sun is shining, there's a very gentle, cool ocean breeze just keeping us very comfortable, yes. right? It's, it's, it's fabulous. I mean, we... Santa Barbara is unique in that it's, you know, hemmed in by the mountains on one side and the ocean on the other, so it tends to be cool year-round. But the local surrounding communities is sort of this rich farmland, which they just produce this extraordinary food. And we have amazing farmers here. Well, and that's a key thing we really wanted to showcase with the Taste of Santa Barbara is there, there's a unique sort of riches of this region, which has a lot to do with the climate and the geography. And um, I know actually you do Mediterranean-style food as, as what you often yes. teach and particularly write about, but it's very connected to what's available here at, in Santa Barbara and at the farmer's market. So could you, you started to talk about how chefs come and find the market to be really unique and special. Could you go into more detail about what those elements are? Um, I th so let me go back one step. Oh, so by all the means. The basis of all the cooking that I do, and I think most chefs do, is I eat seasonally and I really follow what is in season because you're tasting the food that is at its optimum. So I think chefs draw from that. And you'll see any number of them here early in the morning going through the market and they'll suddenly see something and think, oh, that's going to be today's special because, you know, right now we have zucchini blossoms that have just come into and say, oh my God, I can make stuffed zucchinis. And we are, we've just started with all the stone fruits and, you know, your mind starts racing, at least mine does. <laughs> I have no, mine too. I saw cherries and yes. was a bit, it seems early for cherries or... This is about right for us. For here? Yes. So that's the other thing. I... My because cherries are still one thing you cannot get everywhere all no. year round. So if you didn't see the cherries, the is, cherry, now, is the now the time? Now is the time. The cherries are amazing. And we're just coming into the sort of the big first rush of stone fruit. And I saw and apricots what, what today. What stone fruit is local here? All of them? or um, Yeah, they are grown north of yeah. here and in the Central Valley where it's warmer. But what's amazing to me is that here we get apricots and cherries in May and June. So my grandmother, who I learned to cook with, who I, I think of as my French Julia, um, they were uncannily similar. Okay. Um, was she 6'3"? No. No, she wasn't 6'3". In, spi in, in spirit. In, in spirit. And in, their, and in their cooking, in the way they, they cooked. So when I read Mastering the Arts, um, I was, it's as if I was in my grandmother's kitchen because this is her food. So. And what part of France is your grandmother? She was from, originally she was from Normandy. She was born in Lyon, but she grew up in Normandy, the ca dairy capital of France. Yeah. Normandy is all about butter. All about butter and cream and crème fraîche. So in that sense, they were kindred spirits. But she lived in Briançon in the French Alps, okay. which is where my mother was from, was born. 
And there, in her garden, she had cherry trees and plum trees and apricot trees and things. But because it was at altitude, all of those fruit came in in the late summer. I mean, in summer and late summer. So I've always associated those fruits with a sort of summer or late summer fruits. So when I first came to the market here, and it's May, and there are cherries and apricots, I'm thinking, what is going on? This is a complete turnaround. And, and, and are, does that mean, yeah, because I'm used to being in the southwest of France, where the unbelievable peaches, but they're not, they're, they ripen in a three-week window. Yes. And then they give them away for nothing, when, because if you buy them at Whole Foods, they're expensive, and they're usually hard as a rock. Yeah. Um, so when, are they gone by June? Um, I mean, the cherries, there aren't that many cherries this year, so right now there's a big flush of cherries, and they're beautiful. But my guess is that three weeks from now, there won't be any cherries. And apricots, there are some years where the apricot season has lasted four weeks. So really good apricots that are these, that beautiful perfume that you get in apricots. And I love to make apricot jam and apricot clafoutis and all these different things with apricots. And you have that tiny window. No, I was thinking about that too, because when they're ripe, they're wonderful, but yes. those, all those fruits have such a short season yes. that that's why jams made from them, because you have this overabundance, you can't eat anymore, but how do you keep that flavor all year round? Well, you have to do something preserved. You preserve them, and then you ca you've captured the essence of that season, and hopefully you've made enough to carry you through the year. So when I was little, I learned to make apricot jam with my grandmother, and we would take, we lived in London, she lived in Briançon, so it's quite far. And in those days, it took a long time to get there. Um, and we would hand carry back these jars of apricot jam that we had made. And we'd try and make them last as long as possible. And there was nothing worse than you get to the bottom of the jar. And you'd sit there and think, then we'd try and put a call, a long distance call through the operator. To get to the, it took a long yeah, time. Yeah, no, a big, big investment. It yes, was a big investment. Not done except an emergency. I remember when I was. But really apricot jam running out. Apricot, an yes, that was an emergency. <laughs> Absolutely, please send jam. People who care about food. It's, yeah, it's, an emergency. <laughs> it's essential stuff. So, do you, in Pascal's kitchen, do you do courses? Do you ever do classes on making jam or? No, or because the jam is a two or three. My jam is a two or three day process, so I don't. Um, I teach the. Everything that I've done, so this is the 23rd year of teaching classes. Congratulations. Thank you. And in that time frame, I have never repeated a class. Wow. So creating all those recipes over the years has fueled my cookbooks yeah. and all the articles and everything. It's, it's a great challenge for me. Yeah. And... Um, it's been so inspirational. I mean, I, I walk through the aisles here and I just think, oh, wow, okay, there's one of those. Or I'll see two things next to each other. So we are in cherry season. And one year we had, um, there were cherries, and I found the first of the tiny little tomatoes, the little cherry tomatoes. And I, I bought some cherry tomatoes and I bought some cherries. And I got home and they were sitting on the counter next to each other. And they're the same shape and size, practically. And I'm looking at these two things going, this is very interesting. I wonder what they'd taste like together. So I took a cherry and I took a tomato and ate them together. 
And I thought, oh my God, this is, so I made a salad out of that, which ended up in one of my books. Yeah, I was going to ask you, because uh, your book series is very inspired by the market, seasonal oh, yes. eating. It's sort of a combination of market, seasonal eating, and the Mediterranean style food Absolutely. that your exactly. family history <laughs> shares and Santa Barbara yes. resembles. So when you've gone around either today or this week lately, what, what dishes are sort of springing top of mind that people could, could, could well, put together from the market finds? So, I mean, right now there are, um, there are all these edible flowers. So a lot of eating is, for me, it's visual. You know, you, I, you eat with your eyes first. It's a classic saying. And um, there are... You can sh I also think, I'll just to interrupt you there, that the amazing thing to me, particularly at a farmer's market, is shopping with your eyes. Because if it looks good, very at a farmer's market. Yes. Very likely tastes great. And oh, absolutely. It's a good way to... You, using <clears throat> yes. your eyes first at the market using is a great Using your way. eyes first and, you know, smelling things. I mean, right now we're not tasting things. We haven't quite got back to sampling. Um, we might be here. We might be. Well, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> but normally, I mean, uh, particularly, I particularly the stone fruit vendors and the farmers, they have... You can taste the peaches and taste it, and then you've got that, you know, the dripping juice of the fabulous succulent peaches, and you're just, oh my God. So you're asking, so there yeah, are have white. Yeah, you things that you're like, I know I'm going to make that. White peaches. Um, and then at Ojai Microgreens here, they have some amaranth with the color of which is this purple. And you have these amazing bursts of color and edible flowers. Do you want to describe what amaranth is? Because that's a very special thing. Is that hard? Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, it's amaranth like a, is a grain, actually, it is a grain, but it flowers. But it flowers, so it has this purple... It's an ancient grain. It used to be... Well, I think yes. that Native Americans used amaranth. Oh, it's very ancient. But you ha it has this... The, so the stems are purple, and these purple flowers. And, sort of like lavender. Um, she's going to scream at me because I promised I wouldn't mention the amaranth because she doesn't have that oh. much left. But <laughs> Just go look at it. Just go buy. and look at it. No, no, no. Go and buy it. It's, anyway, it's spectacular. And it has, it adds this incredible just pop of color and the taste. And then um, at Drake Family Farms, they have goat cheese, which resembles very much goat cheese from Provence. And they have white peaches. So white mm. peaches with goat cheese. And then um, her family, H-E-R, Family Farms, which is just over here, have an abundance of basil, as does BD, who has, oh my God, the Nirvana of farms. He has a farm called Earth Trine Farms up mm -hmm. in Ojai. Okay. It is, it is truly one of the most beautiful farms I've ever been on. Because, because, because as you walk through, he has fruit trees then, and as you walk through the farm under the fruit trees are carpets of herbs that are grown. Which is very problem solved. And it is, you walk through and you're just sort of inhaling all of these aromas and it's, I just want to lie down in the herbs. I don't want to get stung by the bees, but um, <laughs> anyway, it's, he has amazing basil as well. So lemon basil, Thai basil. So are you composing a salad yes, for us I'm while we're talking? In my it head. sounds delicious. Now, would you dress that at all? Or would I you would. Just, like, what would you put on? I'd put um, a sort of fruity olive oil with some lemon zest and some lemon juice. Just very simple, a lemon vinaigrette. So nothing sweeter than, I was wondering no. if you drizzle, I'm like a big fan of the honey drizzled over like white peaches. Yes. With, with like a But the peaches, so I like that balance of press. salty sweet. Um, so if you've got the, the creaminess of the goat cheese, 
So we've got some salt in there. And actually, here, if you've never tried them, there are Fat Uncle Farms. Have you ever heard of their almonds? No. Oh, my God. They have these blistered almonds that are just extraordinary. Is and a blistered almond a type of almond that grows, or they do something to it? No, they it? do something to it. So it's um, soaked in water, and then when they roast them, I'm probably describing this incorrectly, but anyway, they are... Probably no one out here knows how to blister almonds. You can ask them. They'll explain it. Okay. Um, so they will... Um, the water adheres to the the skin of the they skin the almonds and then when they put seasoning on it it adheres to the seasoning and it creates these little pockets on the outside of the almond and when you bite them it's it's an almond unlike any almond so on that salad peaches okay. goat cheese different uh, basil so we have white peaches yes. local goat cheese local basil yes. like, was the amaranth going on the salad maybe maybe little, little on tufts the side. on the side, side just for color and blistered almonds yes and then the dressing is a, a lemon vinaigrette Lino, yeah. yeah and did, did you can you get local olive oil what olive oil do you get? you can get local olive oil you can even buy olive oil at the farmer's market um, which is it's one-stop shopping you can get everything here Sometimes I'll add a vinegar, a little bit of vinegar, just to up the acid. What white wine I have vinegar? A, yeah, or, or a white wine own, vinegar. Have I have own? a peach, champ uh, a pear champagne vinegar. Do you have your own vinegar mother? Yes. <laughs> no, I used to. I had a vinegar mother which I nursed for ages, and then an overzealous friend cleaning the kitchen. That is a common refrain. Do, how, do folks home. know what a vinegar mother is? Has anybody seen one? Can you describe so, to if you it? Because it, if you come across one, you might be frightened. They're yes. Very, they're like little creatures. So have you, if you've ever bought a, a vinegar and in the bottom looks like this gelatinous blob, and you think, oh my God, something's gone wrong. It's got something growing in it. Yes, it does. It has something growing in it. That is what's making your vinegar. And this friend of mine had bought back from France... I won't say how. Um, <laughs> yes, that's not legal, but I know someone else who did that too. Anyway, he brought me some of his grandmother's mother. Because they, they'll last if oh, you look last. after them, like almost forever. Yes, almost forever. So this was an extremely precious commodity. So I had this, and I had it in a special jar, and it sat on the counter. And then a friend staying with us said, oh my God, there's something weird growing in that, and threw the whole lot away. I, I cried. It's yeah, a, a crying moment. <laughs> it was a crying moment. I, you know how you walk through something and you know where everything is? Yeah. And I walked past and I thought, something's off. What is it? And I'm scanning the kitchen and there is the, the jar gleaming clean and empty. And I, I was apoplectic. <laughs> I think good advice is never throw anything out in someone else's kitchen without asking to so after oh my that, I, I haven't restarted yeah. one since then. It, I was traumatized. No, that happened. That. That, that happened in our family. We had a vinegar mother that had been surreptitiously brought from France. I don't know how old it was, and it was cleaned out of. And it was actually cleaned out of the. It sat in a sort of looked like a big honey pot or a big yeah. cookie jar, and then it has a little tap on the bottom. Exactly. Yeah. But if you had vinegar that's made like that, it has a complexity and, and depth that yeah. you're not going to get in a store-bought vinegar. Or even even some of the gourmet vinegars are still they're made in a more commercial, large-scale way. Right? So don't don't freak out if you see some thing in the bottom of your vinegar. It's actually a great sign, and then you could take that and nurture it. Yeah, it's a little harder. It's I know. Yeah, yeah. You, please look that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
Don't just chuck wine in it and do Rosie's other things. Rosie's for vinegar, empty bottles, probably not. No, great, no, no, that's not going to work. great vinegar. That's but not going to work. if you want to up your salad game, yes. buying really good vinegar, yes. but you don't need a lot of, it's, it's makes No, you difference. just need a little. I mean, my, my ratio for vinaigrette is always three to one. For every three teaspoons, tablespoons, or whatever of olive oil, I add one of the acid. If it's lemon juice or vinegar or whatever it is. But when you're making vinaigrettes, just be sure that the vinegar that you're using doesn't overpower the ingredients. So I, everyone went through that balsamic phase. And balsamic is really strong. And it will, if you have beautiful butter lettuce or very light, delicate greens, if you use a strong vinaigrette, it'll just wipe out the the essence of your greens. Well, let's talk about that. I think there's a, a pairing aspect, yes. just like we talk about wine pairings, of pairing vinegars yep, to absolutely. greens. Like balsamic, to me, works really well in arugula because it has a really strong flavor yep. and it balances it. Dark, with, leafy greens. Yeah. Perfect. The one, ones that have a strong... Yes. But with delicate lettuces or microgreens, you want a light vinegar. Super light. That's why lemon juice and olive oil is great. Oh, a white wine vinegar, something really, really delicate. I want to taste the, fr I mean, you've gone to all this trouble of finding all this fabulous food and then you wipe it out with a vinaigrette that takes away all the flavor of everything that you've got on the plate. That's sort of counter, counterintuitive. So, so you were talking about, you have a sort of signature, you said, is it pear champagne vinaigrette? Yes. So w what is in that? Um, I mean, it's, I could guess from the name, but how do you put it together? So I use a nut mustard. I have a... I don't know, what is a nut mustard? It's a mustard with nuts. It has walnuts oh, in it. Oh, okay. So, so, but you can use a regular Dijon mustard. And so a little bit of Dijon mustard, three tablespoons of olive oil, and a tablespoon of um, pear champagne vinegar, and whisk it together with a pinch of salt and a little bit of pepper. No, it's pear champagne... I've never seen that before. Is it something you make, or it's something it's you something actually It's something that I source... From a secret supplier. From a secret supplier <laughs> that you can find at well, Pascal's Kitchen. Only students of your classes get <laughs> No, no, answer. I have an online... So I don't have a brick-and-mortar um, store. My, I'm, I have an online shop that's Pascal's Kitchen. So um, I've, been, I've been here in Santa Barbara now for whatever it is, 25... You said 20, uh, 20, what are, wait, you're... Pascal's Kitchen is 23 years. Pascal's Kitchen is 23 years. I've been here for 25. So that has, I decided not to open a, a physical shop. So I'm in cyberspace. You can find me there. You can say the website. What's the website? Okay, pascalskitchen.com. I didn't know if I could say that. You so. absolutely can. Okay. After the break, we'll talk to Chef Jeremy Tummel from Santa Barbara's La Paloma Cafe. And stay tuned for another double Julia moment later in the show. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage bento box to power their digital front door, including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. 
BentoBox is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With BentoBox, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com slash chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash chef. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Welcome back. We're talking to Chef Jeremy Tummel. A well-known Central Coast chef, Jeremy leads the culinary team at Santa Barbara's historic La Paloma Cafe, part of the Acme Hospitality Group. La Paloma Cafe serves ranchero-style food, mixing local seasonal fare with traditional Mexican and Spanish dishes, much like those eaten in California's earliest days. Its history as a fixture in Santa Barbara stretches back to 1938, when it opened as a Mexican restaurant. A third-generation Santa Barbaran, who is part Chumash, an indigenous band of Southern California Native Americans, Jeremy has worked at many acclaimed California dining venues, including the Wine Cask, Bacar Resort and Spa, for the Pebble Beach Company, the Rosewood Miramar Beach, and the Baron Star in Los Olivos. He's a graduate of Santa Barbara City College's Culinary Academy, where he's also taught. Welcome to the podcast, Jeremy. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So uh, one of the things I like uh, about your background is you're really from Santa Barbara. Yes, we are lucky to be third generation Santa Barbara. So been um, plugging away here for quite some time. It's a special place. And so I wanted to ask you, before we talk about the market where we are now, as someone who grew up here, what to you is the embodiment? I think Santa Barbara is a really special place. That's certainly what we believe at the foundation. And a lot of it comes from the bounty of, of the food and agriculture and the sea and the geography and the climate. So what to you makes makes Santa Barbara so special? Um, well, the people, of course. I mean, everybody here in Santa Barbara has a, a, a like-mind approach to living here and the kind of casual lifestyle and taking advantage of farmer's markets and fishermen's markets and really enjoying the views and the beaches and the trails and the hikes and everything that this town has to offer. And I think 90% of people walk around in flip-flops and, and just enjoy their lifestyle. And I know I do. And um, yeah. It's a, it's yeah. A, someone asked me what the dress code for the weekend was. And I said, 
California. It's whatever <laughs> you want to wear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And would, growing up, were you as aware about the, the, the special nature of the food and what was grown here? Or was it more about the climate? Like, when did, when did you kind of turn on to that it was a special food scene? Well, that's interesting enough how that ties into Julia Childs. I was very uh, inspired by watching Julia Childs at a very young age. Um, I think I was four or five when mom would start letting me watch uh, TV. And that was one of the only programs I could watch. Uh, so that kind of opened my eyes to what was happening. And then, believe it or not, we, my mom and I would come down to the farmer's markets and fishermen's markets, and we would see Julia from time to time. And apparently I would ask my mom if we could follow her, you know, light, lightweight kind of stalker. Um, I don't remember that, but my mom swears by it. Um, so at that point, I really started getting interested in buying a couple pounds of shrimp at the market, taking it home. My mom would let me cook as long as I cleaned up. Uh, but she really let me kind of explore at a young age what we had to work with here in the how, kitchen. How old did you start doing that? Um, I probably started cooking. Well, I've always watched her and helped her in the kitchen. I started cooking independently probably when I was eight, maybe eight or nine. So it, it sounds like it was just something you had to do that you were just drawn it, towards. Yes, I think it's motivated by a love of food and the more you dive into it the more you get to eat and the more curious you are the more you get to try um the more failures you have makes your successes that much sweeter too so I, i've definitely uh burned a couple shrimp in my days but you, you know you learn the hard way and then you learn the rewards that okay you help mom you get to lick the batter and you get to lick the bowl and you get to be the first one to take a bite of something or you know, you get to kind of create and see that process. I think that's such a such a great comment that Julia was really into is failure is part of learning to cook. Sure. And we got to a place where everything was about perfection. And that I always think that the secret to anyone who's a great cook or chef is that they know how to fix problems. It's not yeah, that they yeah, never yeah. make mistakes. Right. It's that you know how to bail yourself out or turn addition to something else. You can adapt and adjust. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a famous chef once says, you don't know good barbecue until you've had bad barbecue. So it's a lot to learn from that. Yeah. Well, and that talented people who maybe even have a national profile or a restaurant of their own, they still mess up. It's not like oh, yeah. it's, it's yeah, perfection yeah. all the time. Yeah, absolutely. But, right. I always feel like on Top Chef, you're like, don't serve that. You don't have yeah. to say and It's the best decisions, actually. Yeah. Jaini has a, fam uh, a famous moment where she has to pivot on the dessert, but it, 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 it's knowing when to do that. Yeah. I always say we're, we're never perfect, but we're always improving. And I think that's a good slogan for cooks in the kitchen. Don't that accept that like you're it. doing something perfectly because then you won't keep improving. We can always find new ways to be efficient and smarter and cleaner and better. So, so that's our goal. Never perfect. We're always improving. Exactly. Well, I think that fits very much with Julia's lifelong learning sort of philosophy. It was very... I would agree, yeah. To her nature. Absolutely. But do you think it's a common characteristic of chefs is that they always are, are good chefs? I think it should be, yeah. Should yeah. be. Yeah, don't don't ever think that you've hit the golden road and you're there because you take your foot off the gas and you start going downhill. Right. You well, and push. then it, there's always a new ingredient that comes oh, absolutely. up, right? Or absolutely. Someone, which is often about what the farmers decide to grow. That yeah, right. Yeah. Because uh, someone was asking me, they saw mulberries there, and yep. and my yep. my assumption is that the reason mulberries are grown now has a lot to do with the different immigrant populations that moved to Southern California. But I don't know. Are they native? I don't think so. Uh, we used to have a mulberry tree and uh, my little girl. <laughs> um, hi, pumpkin. 
Hi, Sweepy. <laughs> um, we used to have a mulberry tree in the Since front we're on yard. radio, I'll just say you're waving at a baby who's oh, arrived at the yeah, market. Yeah, that's, that's my little girl. <laughs> I'm glad she's here to see me. Um, sorry, I got distracted. Um, we're talking about mulberries. Mulberries, yeah. We had a tree, a huge tree, actually. It's a very large tree and very messy because they, when they drop, they drop everywhere. But I revisited that tree about a couple weeks ago, and they were there, sure enough. So and it's you, a good, I, I feel like it's a good local a seasonal so you fruit. think it might be native? Yes. And do you use mulberries in any of the cooking at La Paloma? Uh, we have them in our, we, we have a Santa Barbara Farmer's Market fruit plate for brunch, and it's 100% fruits that we gather from the market. Wow, that, that's a fascinating connection. We were talking earlier in the show with Pascal Beal about this sort of Mediterranean-style food that she does, and, and one of the reasons she does it is her background being French, but then mm. also because the climate here is, and what's grown here is very similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great climate. So you, you mentioned when you discovered the farmer's market as a little kid. Yeah, yeah. And so have you basically been shopping here your whole life? Uh, on and off, absolutely. Yeah. When you're in Santa Barbara. Yeah, when I'm in Santa Barbara. I, I was gone for about 12 years, I believe. Um, I remember doing a cooking demonstration right down in that corner. I think it was in 2001 when I was at the Bacara. Um, it was on my birthday, and that, that was a lot of fun. But that was just to promote Santa Barbara Farmer's Market. Um, we're down here every Saturday religiously for La Paloma. And any, any operation that I've worked in and around, We've always supported farmers market. So you source maybe not all, but some of the food for the restaurant from the market or from the vendors at the market. Uh, yes, not not a hundred percent, but as much as we possibly can. Yeah. And so, what? Well, I guess we're running. We're kind of at the cusp of the end of spring, start of summer. What would? Um, can you call out any finds or things that are coming into season that you found at the market that you think are well today? found macadamia nuts which is i, did, I saw that really too is cool. that is that new yeah well i remember seeing them as a kid um but i haven't seen them in in a long long time so that was fun to find uh i always enjoy all the flowers this time of year the spring flowers Ed edible flowers yeah, or? yeah. Um, what do you do? do you i mean you really don't cook them you use them in salad mostly garnish yeah um and cocktails um but you know peas asparagus the artichokes are looking great uh, those are all fun. Um, I was excited about the macadamia nuts. That's just a new a new treasure, like you said. Yeah, and do you think do you think it's a, a, a grower who just started planting them, or what? They're in Carpinteria. Yeah, yeah. So I know they're very hard to crack. It's a hard nut to crack. That's why they're so expensive. <laughs> but um, bum. And then do, do, you, do you are you getting some inspiration? Do you think you'll do? Did you buy some? Or are you going to do something yeah. with them? They're, they're right here. Oh, you've or you've got. That's why you keep turning around. All right. So what do you, what do you, I mean, will you just add them to a salad? What do you think? We actually put those currently on our fruit plate for brunch. Uh, oh, so you already use them. You just are sourcing them yeah. somewhere else. Exactly. So now we know we can get them here. Wow. It's awesome. Yeah. We, uh, we already did our shopping for the market today and all the guys took the food back up and we'll be open for brunch. Yeah. I was gonna, so what's going to be on the menu? <laughs> uh, well, we have our market fruit plate. Uh, we're using a lot of uh, Garden of Salanova mix. Uh, that's featured on our restaurant week menu. So we have the La Paloma salad that changes seasonally. So we're featuring uh, her lettuces and Birkdahl Farm stone fruits, early season stone fruits, which are also very exciting part of the season. Yeah, we were talking with Pascal about that, that here with the climate, the stone fruits come in much, much earlier. Yeah, yeah. And cherries. so they're part of your market salad? or Yes, yes. Tell us what's in the market salad. Well, it's our we call it the La Paloma's house salad. Uh, it's a hibiscus vinaigrette. Um, the best lettuce we can get our hands on. 
uh, candy pepitas, and uh, seasonal fruit, which right now is uh, pluots, uh, rainier, and bing cherries. cherries. So really bright, fresh, delicious salad. Great. And are there any uh, vendors or farmers that are here that you really want to call out or who you work with routinely? Well, we, we use Garden Of primarily. Norma at Ojai Valley Sprouts here. We're religiously with her. Uh, Berkdahl Farms, McGrath Farms, uh, Beatty Farms, uh, Tutti Frutti. Uh, we, try to, we try to get as much out from everybody as that we can. And for those vendors that you, you just mentioned, what's kind of unique or special about what they do? Um, I just feel like they do the best quality. Uh, Garden of's product is just hands down superior product. I mean, you, you taste one of their turnips compared to another turnip, and you, you can just taste the kind of terroir. You can taste the, the care, the, the love and experience behind that. Uh, Tutti Frutti grows great tomatoes and peppers. Uh, Berkdahl does amazing stone fruits. You know, it, there's no one farmer that does it all well, so they, they specialize in certain crops, and that's, that's what we're looking for is whatever that farmer is doing the best. And do you think that's their approach to farming? or, or? I would think so, yeah. I mean, you can't grow everything, but grow what you grow well and improve over it year after year. Um, yeah, I would think that's the right approach. So you've worked all over California, kind of, in yeah, main California. regions. Do you think there's something that distinguishes, like, what you know, we were talking earlier, that the Santa Barbara, particularly the Saturday Farmer's Market, where we are now, has a reputation of being a really special place. Do you yeah. feel like here you can get things from the local farmers that are harder to find or not as good quality other places? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I see some of these farmers when we go to the L.A. market or, or Santa Monica market, which is kind of nice to see familiar faces down there. Um, the Monterey Farmer's Market was nowhere near as abundant and, and you know, beautiful as this as this farmer's market is, but they did have a, a decent selection. Um, but again, it's it's where you are, and that's that kind of bases your, your creations. It's it's you work with what you have, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's what makes Santa Barbara so special. And, yeah. and I think yeah. during the Taste of Santa Barbara, one of the things we really wanted to highlight that it's kind of a gift, right? It's like you can do a lot of things really yeah. well, but yeah. some of it just comes down to terroir, right, that yeah. that Santa Barbara is uniquely placed geographically to kind of deliver, if yeah. you will. You have a beautiful crab fishery and a beautiful avocado production, so you put those things together and naturally they're going to go well together. Does that mean you end up with a crab and avocado dish on your menu? We, we have, yes, but crab and avocado salad is a perfect example of a Santa Barbara just iconic dish. And it's, how, how seasonal is that, or can you actually get it pretty fresh a good part of the uh, year? The crabs, I think, are pretty much year-round. They have certain small closures, just like the spot prawns do. Um, but that's one of the products that you can find almost year-round here, if it's not too windy, of course. Crab and wind? Well, if it's too windy, you won't see many crabs at the markets. Fishermen because the out. fishermen don't go out. Yeah. Okay. And what about the avocados? Can you get good avocados year-round, or yeah, there is think, a season? I think they gap a little bit here and there, but I know they have some beautiful ones down here, Carpinteria Haas avocados. Those are delicious. Um, yeah, it's almost year-round. Yeah. And anything else you're, you're planning on the menu as the seasons change at La Paloma? Um, well, we'll continue to just come down here and get inspiration. 
So how often how often do you change the menu? Is it quite, quite the frequent? core menu is kind of designed to be there for the fan favorites and for people would would hope to have, find at La Paloma, which is old California cuisine or what we call ranchero cuisine. Um, it's also a very kind of unique spin on hopefully flavors that are familiar to a lot of people growing up here. You know, pozole. Maybe you don't know what it is, but it'll taste familiar when you eat it. Or a tamale or, you know, all these things that I grew up eating, we want to kind of put out there in the best light possible um, and then change them seasonally. And so, yeah, let's talk about what that is. Because to me, ranchero-style food, it kind of combines sort of native traditions with sort of much more historic European settler traditions. Yeah both Spanish and Mexican, Mexican yeah. and then what is native to the region. Is, yeah. it, is, that, a, is that how you define that's it a, as that's well? That's a good way to look at it. And, and you know, we, I personally look at California as a, whole, as a whole. You know, what was going on in California 100 years ago? Well, you know, the gold rush was kind of a big part of our state. So believe it or not, I draw a little inspiration from those times. Um, I'm part Chumash Indian, so I try to bring in as much, like, truly indigenous ingredients as I can source. Um, and then, yeah, you look at what the rancheros could have been eating back over an open fire or what, you know, the fishermen might have been eating on a boat or the farmers, you know, were eating in the fields. And, and through those kind of trains of thought, when we come up with a dish that sticks and fits that concept, it's, it's really exciting. Yeah, so 100 years ago, you, you kind of didn't have much choice but to eat locally and seasonally, <laughs> that's right? That's very true, yeah. Right? That's so, a great point. That's yeah. a great point. And w- where, do, where does Pozole uh, uh connect in because i think of it as very mexican it dish. is very mexican but is it um would people have been eating pozole in california i years believe ago? so yeah and this one is uh vegan um it's all veg uh, vegetable based it's a pozole verde um so a little bit healthier spin on it uh pretty well received i just feel like it, it fits in the menu concept very well and so you're saying you have some shumash heritage yes. but is pozole something that has much indigenous part or really comes from spanish food well my family that still lives on the reservation enjoys pozole and uh, menudo on new year's eve um, or new year's day that's a big annual kind of tradition so uh, whether it's a chumash based uh, dish i know that my family has enjoyed it for many many I years it's hard hard to parse out but but it, but it would be something that the shumash would would eat traditionally possibly whether yes. it was original. whether it was their cuisine yeah, or yeah, not yeah. yes and maybe possible. just for people who haven't had a pozole or menudo can you describe what it is uh it's very it's a hominy based soup um very rich in flavor uh a lot of mexican oregano radish onion lime so bright rich bold satisfying uh, feel good food so I think of it as having pork in it, or is it is often it can, it yeah. can or I think it cannot. Your traditional uh, pozole rojo would have pork, yeah. but ours like is a, a trotter, right, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, it could be a yeah. <laughs> That's what I thought was yeah, traditional. No, that's, that's it's the like good that. stuff. Yeah. After the break, we'll get another double Julia moment. Did you join us at the Taste of Santa Barbara? Let us know what you thought about it or about today's show. Send us an email or voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org, or better yet, tweet us at Julia Child JCF. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up and if you're alone in the kitchen, 
who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. So Pascal, it's your turn. What's your Julia moment? So I know you asked me to think about this and I have lots of Julia moments and I was trying to think of one. Oh, people cheat all the time and give us more than Okay. <laughs> so um, this, this involves a number of people in my family and the story starts in England. So um, <clears throat> we used to live in London and my mum used to cook these very elaborate meals. And we had an American friend who was a business partner of my father's and his name was Jay. Unfortunately, Jay is no longer with us. But Jay was, he was a tough businessman. You know, if you think of him as a sort of bulldog businessman, that was Jay. And he had this, I mean, he was, he was, you didn't want to come up to, against Jay. Let me just put it that way. So, but he was a love, he loved food and he loved cooking. So whenever he was in town, he and my mother would cook. And they had this, once they had this epic sort of three day monster meal preparation, cooking a canard à duck with orange, mm. which is a classic Julia. If it's on the menu, have it. Have it, yes. If it, Danielle, and, uh, Danielle Baloud does it in, in New York at Danielle. It's, I mean, it's one of those I sort mean, of... other people do. It's one of those old-fashioned dishes, but it was, you know, canard à l'orange became a family... I mean, that became a favorite of ours because of that, that meal. So that sets the stage. Jay cooking. And then later, when I came to the States, um, I used to work in commercial real estate, completely different field. He, that was his field. And so we worked together. And I've seen Jay in negotiations. And remember what I said? He's this tough guy. So I got to know Julia the last five years of her life. And she and I met um, through a strange set of circumstances. I actually saw her on a being interviewed. And the person interviewing her, and she's been asked this question many times, but the, the person interviewing her said, to what do you owe your longevity? And without missing a beat, and I know she's been quoted for this, but without missing a beat, she said, red meat and gin. <laughs> and um, I looked at her, now remember, in England, her show never aired in England. So I didn't have this... You didn't have that whole background. I didn't have the was. whole background of who she was. I mean, I knew her book and I knew, but I didn't understand the sort of. She was Julia. She was Julia, you know. I mean, all, the, all somebody had to say was Julia, and you would think instantly of her. So um, I had seen her, and then I read her book, and then as I'm reading her book, I'm thinking, oh, it sounds like my grandmother's talking to me. So I sent her, she lived down the road from me, so I sent her a note. And I had cured some olives and I sent her a note with the olives because I knew that she had a house in the south of France. And I thought, well, this is very Provençal. And I sent her a note basically saying, thank you for being you. I, never in a million years did I expect a response. A month later, I get this hand, this typed card. She sent these little cards on a typewriter. Dear Pascal, you know, thank you for the olives. I took them to a friend's for dinner. And I'm looking at this card, I'm absolutely stunned. I sent her a thank you for the thank you, which was a jar, a jar of apricot jam. 
Um, a week later, I got another card typed, Dear Pascal, oh my God, the jam, thank you so much, literally. And um, we took it to breakfast, we demolished it in one go. Um, and I thought, well, I can't send her a, th a third thank you, that would be a bit too much. But by... Although she loved to correspond. Yeah, she did. I love those cards. I've tucked them into various books. So she, um, through another set of circumstances, I met her. And when I met her, you know, we, there were a lot of people then, and I introduced myself, and I said, I'm the one who sent you the olives and the jam. And she, she looked at me and she went, I'm going away, I'll be back in six weeks, here's my phone number, call me. Okay. Um, I was a bit nervous Which about that. Which you knew Julia already, totally sincere, totally, yes. she loved all people. At the time I was, I thought, okay, I will, so I did. And that led to the five years, the last five years um, of us having many meals together. And I would invite her for lunch and dinner many times. And I would test recipes on her. That's another story. So remember Jay, right? We're getting back to that. <clears throat> so one day, um, it was my mother's birthday. We decided to have a dinner party. And I called Julia up and I said, you know, it's my mom's birthday, do you want to come? Yes, absolutely, you know, come and, come and pick me up, okay. And then we're getting close to the day and Jay calls and goes, I'm in town, you know, can we have dinner? And I'm sitting there going, Okay, yeah, it's, you know, it's my mother's birthday. Oh, and so they... He knew your mother. And he knew my mum, they used to cook. And he said, what's for dinner? And I said, you'll see. Um, so we go and pick Jay up. And on the way back, we said, oh, we have to pick a friend up. And he said, oh, who's coming? And mum looks at my mother's French. And so she has this very strong French accent. She goes, oh, it's a friend of ours, she, Julia. And he goes, okay. And then we're getting closer to Julia's house and he goes, do I know Julia? <laughs> and he said, she looks at him and she goes, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and then we're just pulling up to outside where, where she lived. And he said, hang on a second, what Julia are you talking about? And she goes, oh, it's Julia Child. And you have never seen a reaction. I. It, suddenly, this was a three-year-old boy jumping up and down. He was in his 70s at the time, I think. And he was, he was transformed. I've never seen anything like this. He leapt out of the car and he was, I'll open the door. I'll hold her hand. So he's, he got to her and when he met her, he was completely speechless. He, he did not know what to do. And he's, he's holding her, taking her to the car, helped her in. And we all have dinner together. So I sat him, he was sitting between my mother and Julia at the time. And I have this photograph. And he looks like the Cheshire cat. <laughs> and he's beaming. And it's at that moment that I understood the, the power, the, everything that is Julia. Because here's this man who could fell somebody with his just a word, who was reduced to melted butter in front of her. <laughs> Um, completely captivated by, by who she was and, and he was, I realized the impact that she had had on his life and on so many people's lives and I'm, I'm so thrilled that I got to, you know, just be with her and cook with her and hear her stories and, and well, do We're things. thrilled to hear that story because I think that really does sum up her 
influence and impact in a very personal way. So yes. thank you for that and thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. It was lovely Thanks to be here. Thanks everyone for you. listening. So Jeremy, we want to get a Julia moment from you. Yeah. What's yours? Well, it's more of a... It can be a story. Yeah, it's more of a full circle story for me because like I mentioned, I, I was obsessed with Julia from a very young age. Um, and then when I was going to culinary school at Santa Barbara City College, she would come through from time to time and we were able to cook for her. Uh, and that was very exciting. And then later on in life, when I was cooking at Epiphany, I was a chef at Epiphany, she would come in fairly regularly. So having her come to the restaurant I was at and being able to chat with her and cook for her, that was for me that was a full circle and really kind of completed my initial inspiration and, and probably a big part of why I'm a chef today to having the satisfaction and the reward of being able to cook for Julia and she didn't recognize you as the child stalker <laughs> she, no from the she market. didn't remember me from the stocking days do you remember what you served her at Epiphany? I remember her last dinner that I was able to cook for her was she had a salad, uh, the house salad. We sent her a small uh, salmon amuse-bouche, and then she ordered a ribeye and had a gin martini, I believe. And that was one of her favorite things, a nice big steak and a gin martini. As she said, red meat and gin. She wasn't. She wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't just a line. No, no, no. But she was a, it lovely, was a way of living. Yeah, lovely, lovely lady. She, yeah. I bet she ate every bite. Yep. 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 Well, Jeremy, thank you very much for joining us on My Inside Joy's Kitchen. No, it's great. Great My to pleasure. be here in Santa Barbara. Thank you all for listening. Please thank tune you. in again. Come thank and you. see us at La Paloma. And thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed one of our first shows recorded live on location in Julia's beloved Santa Barbara, where the foundation is based. To stay up to date on future plans from the Santa Barbara Culinary Experience and next year's Taste of Santa Barbara, make sure to follow at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram. For more about cooking classes with Pascal Beal, she's at Pascal's Kitchen and at Two Baking Brits on Instagram. To keep up with Chef Jeremy Tummel, it's at Chef underscore Jeremy underscore Tummel. And to eat at La Paloma Cafe, it's at La Paloma SB on Instagram. And make sure you're following the foundation. It's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. Please rate the show and leave us a review if you haven't already. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.